There are now some 40 million handguns. Hello everyone and welcome back to the GVP cast. This is your one and only host, Chad. Apologies that we took last week off from releasing a new episode. Things have been a bit hectic here in law school. Who knew? But there are still a lot of topics surrounding gun violence prevention that I want to talk to everyone about, so I will be keeping this podcast alive even if it's the last thing I do. With that being said, I'm really excited to be back on the microphone talking about what will likely be the next big news item regarding Second Amendment law, which is the upcoming Supreme Court case, United States versus Rahimi. So oral arguments in Rahimi are being heard on Tuesday, November 7th. I am fortunate enough to be able to attend these arguments, so I'm very excited for that. But in preparation of this argument, and then eventually probably at the end of the year, a decision, I wanted to talk a little bit today about what the case involves and why it is so important. So just for a little bit of background on the Rahimi case, the law in question is 18 United States Code 922G8. And now that was a lot of headings for what can basically be described as a prohibition on the receipt or possession of firearms by persons who are subject to domestic violence protection orders. So essentially what that means is that if an individual has a domestic violence protective order from a court taken out against them, under federal law, they are prohibited from receiving or possessing a firearm or ammunition. Now, this can be considered to be done for a lot of reasons, but I think the main and obvious one is that individuals who exhibit aggressive and or violent behavior to the point of requiring a domestic violence protective order from their partner probably should not have free-range access to firearms. So on February 2nd of this year, 2023, A three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and if you're curious kind of where the boundaries of the Fifth Circuit are, um, that's like Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, that area, and the Fifth Circuit is known as a rather conservative Court of Appeals. This court ruled that the federal prohibition on gun possession for people subject to domestic violence restraining orders to be unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. So for a little bit of background on the defendant in this case, Mr. Rahimi, between December 2020 and January 2021, Mr. Rahimi was involved in five different shootings in and around Arlington, Texas. So on December 1st, after selling narcotics to an individual, Mr. Rahimi fired multiple shots into that individual's residence. The following day, Mr. Rahimi was involved in a car accident. He exited his vehicle, shot at the other driver, and fled the scene. He then returned to the scene in a different vehicle and shot at the other driver's car again. Then on December 22nd of that year, Mr. Rahimi shot at a constable's vehicle. And on January 7th of 2021, Mr. Rahimi fired multiple shots in the air after his friend's credit card was declined at a Whataburger restaurant. So, Mr. Rahimi, understandably, 
caught some attention through his actions. And when law enforcement discovered that he was the perpetrator behind these multiple acts of gun violence, they went to his house, found firearms, he admitted to owning them, but Mr. Rahimi was subject to a qualifying domestic violence restraining order, which prohibited him from possessing firearms. So he was indicted for doing so, essentially for owning the firearms. But then, throughout the course of his judicial proceedings, the United States issued their opinion in Bruin, which we talked about a few weeks ago, which, as I mentioned, radically altered the test that courts apply to determine whether an individual statute is constitutional or not, given the Second Amendment. So in its decision, the Fifth Circuit wrote that the law in question only applies to a person's dangerousness in relation to another individual, and they claimed that historical laws have sought to protect all of society from categories of individuals perceived as dangerous. So, the court rejected the historical comparisons offered by the government and ruled that there were no relevantly similar laws in U.S. history. Now, if you'll remember from the Bruin episode, that is the test that courts now have to use. So, if courts determine that a given statute implicates conduct protected or regulated by the Second Amendment, then they then move on to the second step, which is a historical analog test in which the government is responsible for identifying sufficient historical analogs to contemporary laws to demonstrate that the contemporary law is within our nation's history and tradition of firearm regulations. And so when the government is unable to do so, presumptively, under Bruin, that is the type of statute that would be unconstitutional if it is not within our nation's history and tradition of firearm laws. The United States appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court took up this case. Now, as a quick reminder, there were some pretty big gaps in time between the Supreme Court's other major firearms decisions. Heller was 2008. I believe McDonald was 2014. Bruin was 2022. So these cases were not coming before the Supreme Court very often, but we are now at another Second Amendment case rising all the way to the Supreme Court. And my impression is that this is probably because the Bruin test is, at least as it is explicitly written on the page in Bruin, a bit unworkable and unclear. And a number of courts around the country have been assessing the same laws under this standard and reached entirely different conclusions. And so I would imagine that the Supreme Court's reasoning in deciding to take up this case had something to do with resolving some of these unanswered questions in the Bruin decision. Now, as someone who has been in court defending the constitutionality of laws since Bruin, I would say that the the main unanswered questions, there's a few. One is that Justice Thomas in the majority did not explicitly state, when he said that you have to find historical analogs, he didn't say to what period in time we should be looking because the Second Amendment in and of itself, as it applies to the federal government, was ratified in the late 1700s, but didn't apply to the states, as we learned through McDonald until the 1860s. And so Justice Thomas, in his majority opinion, didn't clarify whether we should be looking at the 1770s or the 1860s for the general time frame in which a historical analog may be valid. There was also no specification of how close in time it actually had to be to one of those things. And so, you know, let's say that, let's say that Justice Thomas had said the correct era to look at is the late 1700s when the Second Amendment was ratified. There is no indication of how many years, days, weeks, months around then a historical analog is kind of sufficiently within that time zone. So is that, does it have to be enacted within six months? A law does it have to be enacted within a year, two years, 10 years? We don't know. 
Another unanswered question, well, it's not really unanswered, I think courts just struggle with it, but a a troublesome question for courts has been the the distinction between historical analogs and historical twins. And I don't think the majority opinion in Bruin did a great job discerning what test it meant, if it had a clear test in mind, which is not even clear that they did. But in the world where they did have this perfectly clear test in mind, it didn't come across very well on paper, because a lot of courts have rejected the constitutionality of laws because they couldn't identify historical twins. And at least in my reading of the Bruin opinion, it is pretty clear that they emphasize that we are not looking for a historical twin, but are instead looking for a historical analog. And an analog is very different from a twin. And the majority in Bruin seems to indicate that we should look at how and why a given gun regulation impedes on an individual's right to keep and bear arms when we're making this comparison. And so, in theory, if a historical law burdened that right in the same way, and for the same reason, the how and the why, then, presumably, that would be a sufficient historical analog. It's sort of unclear. And so because of this lack of clarity, I think the an issue like this was ripe to be taken up sooner than is normal in the history of the Supreme Court's Second Amendment jurisprudence. Now, before I get more into this case itself, I want to talk a little bit about domestic violence restraining orders or domestic violence protective orders. You will hear a lot of people throw out the term like DVPO or DVRO, domestic violence protective or restraining order. And I may use that throughout, so I apologize if I dump into that. But just know that what we're talking about generally, what these terms encapsulate are these protective orders taken out against individuals because of domestic violence. Now, these policies prevent abusers from accessing firearms and are pretty effective at reducing domestic violence homicide caused by firearms. So these laws are civil orders that are issued by a court to protect victims of abuse, and they may order various forms of relief from abuse, often including, but you know, not limited to, stuff like ordering the respondent to stay away from any person eligible for the relief, refrain from entering the home of the person, and refrain from purchasing or possessing firearms. Uh, federal law prohibits anyone subject to one of these orders issued after notice and hearing from purchasing or possessing firearms specifically. So you may be wondering if these types of laws are effective. Now, they haven't been around for an incredibly long time, so we don't have a ton of data, but data that we do have does suggest that this, these laws are effective in reducing firearm violence in domestic relationships. So when state law allows dating partners to petition for a domestic violence protective order, there is a 13% reduction in intimate partner homicide and a 16% reduction in firearm intimate partner homicide. And that's, those statistics are from a 2018 study from the American Journal of Epidemiology. These are not superfluous laws that have no tangible purpose. They are effective and they, and they do reduce gun violence, which I think is important. It gets to the heart of this issue, which is that we have an epidemic of gun violence and no one is quite sure how to solve it. And so people in different areas are taking different approaches. And one of them is to try to restrict domestic abusers from having access to firearms. Research also shows that reductions in both intimate partner homicide and firearm intimate partner homicide were the greatest when a domestic violence protective order covered dating partners in addition to current and former spouses. Now, some of these laws are written in a way where they only apply to someone who was married to an individual. And so there's what's known as perhaps the boyfriend loophole or a dating loophole where, where the law would not apply 
if an individual had not been married to the person who took out the protective order against them. So if I were to be dating an individual and took out a protective order against them in some states, they would be prohibited from purchasing a firearm, but in other states, that wouldn't be specified. And so in theory, because we weren't married, because of the language in these specific statutes, they would still be able to purchase and possess firearms. Now, some states have closed this loophole by prohibiting dating partners, regardless of you know other factors such as living together or having children. Some states have just closed this dating partner loophole, and data shows that most intimate partner violence does happen between non-married individuals, and over half of all intimate partner homicides are perpetrated by dating partners. So this is an important loophole to check and close, but at the same time, this is not exactly why we're here today. As I mentioned, oral arguments in the Rahimi case are going to be heard on Tuesday, November 7th. And if I had to wager where I think the court's head may be at is that we, I believe, and this is purely my personal opinion, that the Supreme Court probably would not have taken up Rahimi if they agreed entirely in the Fifth Circuit's reasoning and decision-making when they reached their conclusion. Because if they did agree, they probably would not have agreed to hear the case because they would have just said that, nope, the Fifth Circuit got it right, so there's no need for us to hear it. And so the fact that they took up the case means something. It's just a matter of what that means. And if I had to wager a guess right now in this moment, it's currently mid-October, I would venture to say that at least a strong portion of this argument will hinge on some language from the Heller opinion, which we talked about in the first episode of this podcast, in which Justice Scalia penned that, you know, there are certain prohibitions, and he names those, uh, you know, prohibitions on felons and the mentally ill from carrying firearms as laws that are still presumptively constitutional. And now that language was missing from the majority in Bruin, but in the concurring opinion of Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts, that language was reiterated. And so if I had to guess right now, I would guess that the three liberal justices, Justice Jackson, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan, along with Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts, probably believe that those specific carve-outs from Heller still apply today, given that they've all kind of endorsed that language at some point or another. And that does get them to the five-vote threshold where suddenly you have a majority agreeing that something may be upheld. And now Justice Barrett's jurisprudence on firearms is limited, and so we don't quite know where her head may be at in this. She did sign on to the majority opinion in Bruin, but also wrote a concurring opinion, sort of pointing out some of the shortcomings of the test, or the unanswered questions, if you will. And so we don't really know where her head may be at, and she's just, you know, another person that could make a decision 6-3, could make it 5-4, we don't really know. So my guess is that the Supreme Court probably holds that this statute is constitutional, and they could get there in a few different ways. The first is that the Fifth Circuit's historical analog test was pretty strict and was looking very much for a historical twin, and so it could just be that the Supreme Court says, you know, the Fifth Circuit misapplied this test or didn't look at the history correctly, so we're just here to clear the record, and therefore this is constitutional because if you look at this law from history and this thing and this thing, it clearly demonstrates that our nation has a history and tradition of disarming dangerous individuals, particularly those who are involved in intimate partner violence. Or they could say, the Bruin test still stands. However, because we didn't overturn Heller, the notion that Scalia penned in Heller that certain long-standing prohibitions on people like felons are still presumptively constitutional, they could just kind of hinge their decision on that language. 
and say that, you know, this court has always said that there are common sense, long-standing prohibitions that our decisions would not call into question the constitutionality of. It's yet to be seen. I'm sure I will have much, much more to say about this after the oral arguments leading up to the decision. I think oral arguments are often a time where we can get a sense of where the justices' heads are at, and everyone will try to read the tea leaves a little bit and see where they might be going. And so I will be very excited to, well, not excited. Excited is always the wrong word to say. I guess maybe it is. Excited in an urgent way, not excited in a giddy way, but excited in the sense that I am very, very curious to see where some of these justices maybe heading in terms of their jurisprudence regarding the Second Amendment. So we will keep an eye out for that. But essentially, just to kind of recap the episode as a whole, there's a case being heard very soon by the Supreme Court. This case concerns the constitutionality of a federal law that prohibits individuals with domestic violence protective orders taken out against them from possessing or receiving firearms. And now data does show that these types of laws are effective and at least in my reading of the Fifth Circuit's opinion in Rahimi, their historical analysis was fairly limited and held to a much higher standard than the Bruin decision commands in that they were very much looking for a historical twin. So now the Supreme Court will have the final say and will let us know what the right outcome, at least in their mind, this case is or should be. And so that's the Rahimi case. Really unsympathetic appellee in this situation Mr. Rahimi doesn't exactly check off all the boxes of, you know, a good guy who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he they can't play the narrative of, oh, it's just a, a wild ex-girlfriend who claims that she was abused, and look at this guy, he's so nice, and he volunteers in the community, and he's such a good person, so how could we possibly disarm him? <laughs> By being such an objectively terrible person, Mr. Rahimi has made it very hard for the Supreme Court to play into any of those kind of normative arguments about disarming individuals, because it's very clear that if he's going to be firing his gun during drug deals, during traffic accidents, and during such minor inconveniences as a friend's credit card being declined at a fast food restaurant, he is probably not an individual who we should enthusiastically support in owning firearms, at least in my opinion. I really appreciate everyone tuning back in. This might have been a bit of a shorter episode, but that's okay. I don't think anyone's ever complained about a podcast episode being short. And just as a gentle reminder, you can find us on social media on both Twitter and Instagram, or is it X and Instagram? Whatever it is, at the GVPcast. Give it a follow, and you'll be sure to stay up to date when new episodes are released. And if you are enjoying this podcast, feel free to give it a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That would be super helpful. And as always, I really appreciate you coming along on this journey with me. And with that, I will say this is Chad once again signing off for the GVP cast.